Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Sorry, I'm in a little different room today, so it might be a little echoey, so kind of sorry. Anyways, hope you're doing well. Happy summertime. Hopefully your kids aren't driving you nuts yet. Hopefully your parents aren't driving you nuts if you're a kid. Anyways, let's talk about Doctrine and Covenants section 63. After a long trip to Missouri and back, like seriously, this walk puts all your hikes and campouts to shame. Joseph is just straight up walking back and forth across America. So he arrives safe and sound back in Ohio. And when he gets back, his record states this. He says, quote, Many things transpired upon this journey to strengthen our faith and which displayed the goodness of God in such a marvelous manner that we could not help beholding the exertions of Satan to blind the eyes of the people so as to hide the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. And then he goes on. I inquired of the Lord for further information upon the gathering of the saints to Zion and the purchase of the lands and other matters and received the following, which was Doctrine and Covenant 63. So basically the question is, what now for Zion in Missouri? And God responds by saying, you got Doctrine and Covenant 63, 24 and 25. I want you to assemble in Zion. And I want you to, in verse 26 through 31, I want you to purchase land rather than shed blood for the land. And then he instructs Isaac Morley to sell his farm in Ohio since he's moved to Missouri. And God instructs Frederick G. Williams and Newell K. Whitney to maintain their assets in Kirtland to help finance the work of Zion. So since Isaac Morley is in Missouri, he has given power of attorney to his brother-in-law, a guy named Titus Billings. Titus is a sweet name, don't you think? And so this is why Titus Billings also receives instructions to sell the farm in verse 39. So in obedience to that command, Titus Billings sold approximately 80 acres of Isaac Morley's farm to Richie and Hercules Carroll, again, sweet name, in October 1831. Now, Frederick G. Williams was not asked to sell his farm, but he still demonstrated a willingness to sacrifice. He he told Joseph Smith that his farm could be used to house and feed church members in need. And then he is going to later consecrate his entire farm uh, to the church without receiving payment in return. And so you you get this... um, this sacrifice of Frederick G. Williams and other faithful saints that helped them retain a stronghold in the land of Kirtland for the space of five years, like it's going to say in the next section, 64 verse 21. And so it's that time period because of the sacrifice of guys like Frederick G. Williams and others that the saints are going to be able to build the Kirtland temple and to bless other people. So basically, I feel like that's a pretty straightforward answer to Joseph's original question, um, but it wasn't everything that Joseph was asking about. Later, Joseph says, I inquired of the Lord for further information upon the gathering of the saints in Zion, that's what we've talked about, and the purchase of land, also talk about, and other matters. So what are these other matters that he gets the answers about? So... One of the things, um, these other matters, John Whitmer, who is church historian at the time, tells us about. He says, There was much trouble and unbelief among those who call themselves disciples of Christ. Some apostatized and became enemies to the cause of God and persecuted the saints. 
And now, when the elders had returned from Missouri, this is still John Whitmer, to their homes in Ohio, the churches needed much, much exhortation because in the absence of the elders, many apostatized, but many have returned again to the fold from whence they had strayed. And so some of the other matters that Joseph is asking about is this idea that you're getting a lot of apostasy going on. And so that's part of why God says in verse 2, Ye verily I say, I say, hear the words of him whose anger is kindled against the wicked and rebellious. Now, some of you are uncomfortable with this language in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants. Like, it seems pretty intense. Like, my anger is kindled against the wicked and rebellious. But I honestly think it's a little bit different than you're assuming. See, Nile Maxwell says it this way. He says, God's anger is kindled not because we have harmed him, but because we have harmed ourselves. I, like, the, some of the times I have spoken most sharply with my children is when they have walked out in the street in traffic or done something else foolish that could have or did result in their harm. Like, that's what, like, kindles my anger. I was like, dude, what are you doing? See, like, your actions don't offend God's sensibilities. They offend your nature. That's what he's upset at. He's saying, this is not you. Like, come on, man. Anyway, one of the biggest apostates from this time was a guy named Ezra Booth. We've already mentioned him. But about this time, um, Joseph says, Ezra Booth came out as an apostate. Joseph goes on, he says, he came into the church upon seeing the person healed of an infirmity many years standing. Like this is uh, Elsa Johnson's lame arm, the rheumatoid arthritis, she can't even move it. So he joins up, he goes on the mission, expecting to do miracles, send down lightning bolts, but, and Joseph goes on, he went up to Missouri as a companion of Elder Morley, but when he actually learned that faith, humility, patience, and tribulations go b before the blessings, and that God brings low before he exalts, like, he's like, what the heck, this mission stuff is hard, that instead of the Savior granting him power to smite men and make them believe, <laughs> as he said he wanted God to do in his own case. And then he was disappointed. When he was disappointed by his own evil heart, he turned away and became apostate. So God comments a little bit on this show-me-first attitude of conversion, like treating communion with God like a credit card transaction, like give me the goods and I'll pay the money, like show me that, that you're real and I'll exercise faith. But to this idea, God says in verse 8, Verily I say unto you, there are those among you who seek signs, and there have been such even from the beginning. But behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. Now, this is not to say signs don't exist. They do. But faith or trust and confidence in God is always going to come first. You know how this goes. Like Nephi trusts God and goes into the city not knowing beforehand what he should do. Then the miracle comes. They have to wade into the water before it divides. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego feel the heat of the flame before they're rescued. Verse 11, Yea, signs come by faith unto mighty works. For without faith no man pleaseth God. So that, I think this really is the main question of God asks us in our lives over and over. Do you trust me? And when we do, God still grants signs and miracles today. 
Elder Donald Hallstrom recently has put it this way. He says, years ago on an assignment in the state of California, I went with a stake president to visit with Clark and Holly Fales at their family home, uh, at the, in, and their family in their home. I was told they recently had experienced a miracle. Upon our arrival, Clark struggled to stand and greet us as he was wearing a back brace, a neck brace, and braces on his arms. Just over two months prior, Clark and his son Ty and about 30 other young men and leaders set out to, on a stake high adventure activity, hiking to the 14,180-foot summit of Mount Shasta, one of the highest peaks in California. On the second day of the arduous hike, most of the climbers reached the summit, a thrilling accomplishment made possible because of months of preparation. One of the first people to the top that day was Clark. After a brief rest near the edge of the summit, he stood and began to walk. As he did, he tripped and fell backwards over the edge of a cliff, suffering a free fall of about 40 feet and then an out-of-control tumble down an icy slope for another 300 feet. Remarkably, Clark survived, but he was severely injured and unable to move. The miracles Clark experienced during this traumatic event were just beginning. Some of the first to reach him happened to be a group of hikers that included mountain rescue guides and emergency medical professionals. They immediately treated Clark for shock and provided gear to keep him warm. This group also happened to be testing new communication device and sent an emergency request for help from an area where cell phones could not get a signal. A small helicopter was immediately dispatched to Mount Shasta from an hour away after two dangerous but unsuccessful attempts to land at an altitude that pushed the limits of the aircraft and struggling with treacherous wind conditions the pilot began a third and final try. As the helicopter approached from a different angle, the winds happened to change, and the aircraft landed just long enough for the group to quickly and painfully squeeze Clark into the small compartment behind the pilot's seat. When Clark was evaluated at the trauma center, tests revealed that he had sustained multiple fractures in his neck, back, ribs, and wrists, a punctured lung, and a multitude of cuts and abrasions. A renowned neurotrauma surgeon happened to be on duty that day. He's at this hospital only a few times a year. This doctor later stated that he had never seen anyone sustain so much damage to the spinal cord and cardioid, uh, car car carotid, I don't know, kids, arteries and live. Clark was not only expected to live, but also return to full function. Describing himself as agnostic, the surgeon said Clark's case went against all his scientific learning about neurological injuries and could only be described as a miracle. Uh, as Clark and Holly finished relating this intense account, I found it difficult to speak, Donald Hallstrom says. It was not simply because of the obvious miracles, but because of a greater one. I had a profound impression, a spiritual witness that Holly and each of the five beautiful children who sat in the living room around their parents have such faith that, it could have, and that they could have accepted whatever the outcome might have been that day. And they still would have been, still would have spiritually prospered, end quote. That's awesome. Faith brings about miracles 
and faith sustains us when God, in God's um, good will, those miracles don't come. But God does something interesting right after this. Following his comments on signs, God makes an interesting tie-in in 63. Um, right after his comment about signs and sign-seeking, he condemns adultery and lust. It reads, he says, there were some, there were among you adulterers and adulteresses, some who have been turned away from you and others remain with you and hereafter shall be revealed. Let such beware and repent speedily, lest judgment shall come upon them as a snare and their folly shall be made manifest and their work shall follow them in the eyes of the people. And verily I say unto you, as I have said before, he that looketh on a woman to lust after her, or if any commit adultery in their hearts, they shall not have the spirit, but shall deny the faith and fear. So this is fascinating as he talks about faith and miracles here that he segues into this idea about lust. Like Joseph Smith taught it this way. He said, Jesus said that he who seeketh a sign is an adulterous person. And that principle is eternal, undeviating, and firm as the pillars of heaven. For whenever you see a man seeking after a sign, you may set it down that he is an adulterous man. He goes on, he says, When I was preaching in Philadelphia, a Quaker called out for a sign. I told him to be still. After the sermon, he again asked for a sign. I told the congregation the man was an adulterer, that a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and, and that the Lord had said to me in Revelation that any man who wanted a sign was an adulterous person. Then somebody yells out from the back, it's true, I caught him in the very act. <laughs> and this guy's busted in public. And the man afterwards confessed, and then Joseph baptizes him. There's a lot of layers there that I think you should ponder. But anyways, so we are saying, or God is saying otherwise, that the consequences for lust and adultery is that, number one, you're not going to have the spirit. Number two, you're going to deny the faith. And number three, that you shall fear. George Q. Cannon of the First Presidency said it this way. He said, We confidently assert and we believe that the assertion is capable of the fullest proof. The more persons have denied the faith in consequence of their flagrant disobedience to this revelation, 6316, than from any other cause. It is utterly impossible for any man who practices impurity to remain steadfast in this church. If he looks upon a woman to lust after her or carries into execution his lustful desires in any form, unless he speedily repents, that's key. We keep trying. We keep repenting. We keep trying. That's huge. He will deny the faith. It is inevitable as the word of God, as the entire history of the people abundantly prove. So basically, there seems to be an inverse relationship, like a separate, like a relationship that will go opposite directions an inverse relationship between lust and faith. So what can we do about it? Because President Hinckley has taught that, that God has made us attractive to one another for a great purpose. And, and President Packer adds that this power of procreation is central to God's plan of happiness. So this is not something, meaning that the attraction or lustful feelings we have sometimes, it's not something inherently evil. Uh, it, it's rather something really good that Satan is trying to get you to use in improper ways. 
It's like a baseball bat. Baseball bats are fantastic to play baseball with, but abominable to hit your brother with. I have four brothers. Anyway, what can we do? Well, I think this comes back to faith again. You're going to come across lustful thoughts. It's not a matter of if, but when. Now, most people, when struck with a lustful thought, a lustful feeling, do one of two things. Number one, they dive in and they watch the movie in vivid detail, eating popcorn as they go. Or number two, they feel totally guilty about how could such a thought come from me and then rage against it. Well, the better approach is neither of these. You see, indulging in lust will lead to a loss of the spirit, faithlessness, and fear. And guilt, shame, and rage are just going to reinforce the thought process that that brought it there. The third path is to trust Jesus enough to let it go. That's it. Just let it go. I I know you'll want to explore all the triggers that caused it and wrestle with it and on and on. But I'm saying it's way more simple than that. Just let it go. Don't entertain it. Don't fight against it. Because what you do in both of these situations um, neurologically is just reinforce the path. You, you just basically pick off the scab and make it so that it can never get fully here, healed. So stop messing with it. Let your soul watch your body have a human interaction with life. Thinking a thought, feeling emotions, but just don't get sucked into the melodrama. Trust that Jesus has already taken care of it and let it go. I'm telling you, you'll be shocked at how if you just don't mess with it, it goes away. It will evaporate. Now, some of you have developed a mental pattern of engaging with lust. will have to make the decision to let it go over and over and over again. Several times during a day, heck, several times during an hour and a minute. But that's okay. That's it. You're just choosing to let it go. It's not a fight. Jesus already won the fight. He will take care of this. All you have to do is let it go and move on. It works, I promise. Try Jesus on this. Consider this parable. Once upon a time, there was a skilled swimmer training for their first Ironman triathlon. They'd done other triathlons before, but this is the big daddy of them all. Now, their background is in running and cycling, and so they are solid and dependable there. But their swimming is, let's say, serviceable. They got there and got back, but, um, <laughs> but really where they hammered it out was the running and the cycling. But in preparation for the 2.4-mile open ocean swim off the Big Island, they're spending a lot of time in ocean, open ocean swims, like day after day, swim cap, speedo gear, goggles, salt water in the eyes, all of that, right? Anyway, partway through a particularly grueling training swim, out of nowhere, their leg cramps up. Now, this is no side stitch level cramp. No, this is an all-out seizure, an attack, gripping the whole leg in a vice and squeezing it closed. It was so unexpected that they took a sharp intake of breath, and for the first time really ever, they breathed in water, like straight into the lungs. Now, I know it would seem like it would take a minute to start drowning, but even an experienced swimmer, the instant thought was, I'm drowning! So they begin to thrash and pull as hard as they can. 
But the severity of the cramp and the initial lungful of water had made it so that every movement was basically counterproductive. It feels like instead of moving forward, they're being sucked down. It's illogical and out of place and completely unhelpful at the moment, but they can't help wondering if mere people are the real cause. It feels like they're, they're, I like it, like mermaids are drawing them down. Like they're, they're getting dragged down like something is happening. The desperation is absolutely real. They're churning and they are sinking. Fortunately for them, they are swimming at a lifeguard patrolled beach. And unlike the lifeguards at your local pool who are there to get a tan and distract squints palindorus, these lifeguards are always attentive. Uh, They caught the splash and they were sprinting to the ocean before our swimmer even knew he was drowning. They, They sped out on a wave runner, dove in as our swimmer thrashed and sunk. As the lifeguard arrives, our swimmer soared in hope, right? Grasping them as the lifeline they were gonna in their continuing effort to thrash their way to safety. But this thrashing, however, just led to both of them sinking down. Fortunately, the the lifeguard was prepared and slipped out of their grasp, grabbed them firmly and commanded them to relax. But this was so counterintuitive to relax would mean death, surely. So they continued to thrash and to work and to save themselves making it so much more difficult to move them to safety. So again, the guard commanded them to relax and to trust him. I'm a good swimmer. I can help, said the the, the guy, right? Surely there's something I can do. Yeah, there is. Stop, relax, and trust. And so although it went against everything they thought, and although they, they, they thought they should be doing more to be saved, They relaxed. He trusted. And it worked. Laying there, being towed to safety, the cramp softened, their muscles elongated, the pain started to evaporate. And as they floated, they felt safe. Be still and know that I am God. And watch him perform a miracle in your life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.